Thank you, ladies, for leading us in song this morning. If you're a visitor here this morning for the first time or first uh, of a couple times and haven't had a chance to visit this table yet on your way out this morning, I encourage you to do that today. It's a little packet of information that captures who we are as a church, what we're about, what we believe. Uh, But I encourage you, too, on your way out to not go all the way out. We're going to stick around for lunch this morning. And I bet if you're like me, you eat lunch. I mean, it's something that most of us do, and you probably, unless you have some really big plans, uh, why not eat uh, a meal here? And it gives us a chance to get to know you, it gives you a chance to get to know us, and I know that's not easy. I shared with folks last week that I'm an introvert, and that's not easy for everybody, but we press on through that, and we find some real treasures on the other end of that. We can't be enslaved to how we might be wired that's not who we are as a people. So I encourage you to press on this morning, even if that might be a little alarming for you. I'm going to start with prayer this morning, and then we are going to climb into our message. Lord, this morning, first I want to pray for another church in town, uh, Highland Terrace Baptist Church. I want to pray for Pastor Chet Haney. I'm thankful for the chance to spend some time with him this week and get to know him. Just a neat, neat guy. Just thankful for his call to Greenville. Had a chance to visit and hear about his family and hear about his daughters and how he has moved here and been called here to Greenville. And wonderfully, in your plans, you've placed all three families just nearby and all three of his daughters and their families. And thankful that he is blessed with a family that um, is walking with you. Uh, thankful that he um, has been called here to Greenville and is pastoring Holland Terrace. So, uh, Holland Terrace is a treasure to me. and thinking about the families that that you have raised up there and are raising up there and equipping week after week uh, just a steady ministry presence in our community for a long time. I'm thankful that Chet has become part of that work in these last couple of years. I pray for Chet, Lord. I pray for his marriage. I pray that it is blessed and rich and that it's the best part of his ministry. And I pray that you are um, protecting his marriage from Uh, the wiles of Satan and what he would love to do to a pastor in his marriage and um, pray that he's just really enjoying his family and that worship finds purchase there first. Um, I pray that secondly it finds purchase in the pulpit that as he teaches and preaches that it is equipping the saints for the work of service. Lord I pray that after that that it's falling in line with counseling and shepherding that takes place out of the pulpit that you are fueling him with worship and um, pray that you would guard him from what uh, all pastors, I think, preachers are in danger of is just doing this as a job. And I pray that he would walk in that as a calling, continue to walk in it as a calling. Thankful for the chance to get to know him this week. Thankful for the chance to lift up Highland Terrace Church, Baptist Church, Lord. We pray that you will use the ministries there to grow the kingdom and pray that they will have uh, issues like seating capacity and parking issues and nursery space issues and problems like that that... Uh, we could just really celebrate. Um, ultimately, Lord, we just pray that they are making disciples, as I pray that we are doing here, that we are uh, being faithful about um, equipping the saints uh, to know you, to walk with you, to be salty, bright, and aromatic as we go into workplace, into our neighborhoods, into our context, wherever they might take us. Lord, I pray this sermon will be in keeping with that. I pray that it will be uh, squarely walking in truth and in your will for this people this morning. Uh, we love you, Lord. We turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
I'm not an Olympics junkie. Some of you are. I know who you are, some of you. Christy McGraw might be one of them. There are others among us. Uh, I found out just this week, Julie Boggs, I think, is really, maybe her whole crew, maybe her whole family. My goal is to embarrass as many people I can as possible this morning, so I'm just kind of looking at faces and planning my attack. Actually, I'm not at all. (laughs) The Olympics, I think, are a great time. I think if you enjoy uh, sports and enjoy the uh, human triumph and achievement, you enjoy the Olympics to some degree. I, uh, in the weeks leading up to the Olympics, I read various articles here and there about some of the athletes. One of the articles that I really enjoyed reading was um, the number of couples, married couples that are in the Olympics this year. There are, I think, 14 couples, at least this, at least this article that I read, that had married couples that were both uh, participating in an event. One of the couples is a, a, a uh, they're both triathletes. And um, that's something that's really interesting to me. Uh, years ago, I fancied myself a, uh, a, a tri- triathlete. It turns out I was a very mediocre triathlete, so um, I didn't really entertain that beyond college, um, except for a triathlon here and there. But I enjoy that sport uh, especially. My undergraduate and graduate degrees were both in exercise physiology and had an emphasis on endurance type events. So that something about the triathlete has always been very interesting to me. The, the physical makeup and profile for a successful triathlete has to have tremendous uh, genetic uh, blessing. Okay? To be a successful triathlete at a, a world level, Olympic level uh, type of competition, uh, you have to have just an un- uh, an otherworldly uh, VO2 max is what it's called, the ability to use oxygen. Okay, your oxygen carrying capacity in your blood has got to work with your oxygen utilizing capacity within your cells, and it's called VO2 max. And these guys that compete at these levels have VO2 maxes, give you some numbers. You don't even need to know the units. I'll just give you a number around the, around the range of 80, 70 to 80 to 90. And for most of us, we sit here at around 40. Okay, even the most healthy of you sit around 40. Okay, so they, these have to have some uh, really high VO2 um, potentials. They need to have slow twi- twitch muscle fibers. They need to have the kind of muscle fibers that can go really long distances at a real steady pace. They're not like the explosive Hussein Bolt, you know, uh, sprinting down the, uh, the track type muscle fibers. These are very unique muscle fibers, especially equipped to carry you over long distances. Um, You need to have glycogen-rich livers, the ability for your liver to to really hold and develop and then mobilize glycogen so that you can use it as fuel. You need to be naturally genetically lean. (laughs) Bad news for me and lots of others that you have to be really lean, like stick lean, to be really good at competitive level, um, Olympic level, especially triathlons. You need to have the ability to deal with heat like, you know, I mean, they, they found that you have, like, special placement and special use, uh, special uh, effectiveness of your sweat glands, that you can evaporate and evacuate core heat so that you can keep going. So things just have to be perfect for a triathlete to be successful. You need to have a high pain tolerance on top of that. So I'm thinking about this couple that I read about, Laura and Greg Bennett. Laura and Greg Bennett are both participating in the Olympics and triathlons. And I'm thinking, okay, each of them individually has the genetic potential to succeed at a worldwide level, world competition, 
the triathlons. Okay, that's pretty amazing. Now, I wanted to do a little research on Laura and Greg, and I couldn't find any for, any, anything beyond their competitions. They have a web page. I didn't see anything about children. But I'm just imagining what it would be like for their children. Okay, they've got genetic potential, not exactly times two, but genetically potential, at least genetic potential plus. They have the opportunity to go above and beyond what each of their parents could potentially if the right combination of genetic material came together in those kids. So I'm thinking about those kids and imagining what life would be like for those kids. You know, they're in, they're toddlers, you know, they're playing around with other toddlers and the other toddlers are sort of getting tired playing around on the monkey gyms and all and these, these kids that are kids of Laura and Greg, these imaginary kids that we've made up, they're just not tiring. I mean, they're just playing, just, you know, pulling around like monkeys and, you know, just having a great time and they just don't wear out and don't fatigue. You know, they advance a few years and get to those PE classes where they make you run around the football field and they finish before everybody else and they're like not even winded and you're looking at them like I hate you I hate you I'm about to die and you didn't even have to exert an effort so I'm imagining what life would be like for this imaginary offspring of Laura and Greg Bennett that they would have really wonderful genetic blessings to be really successful at triathlons or some endurance type event and I'm also thinking about how funny it would be if Laura and Greg's child, this imaginary child, becomes of age and sits down with mom and dad, world-class triathletes, and says, Mom and Dad, um, I don't think I'm going to do triathlons. And mom and dad are thinking, okay, well, maybe, maybe, maybe he's about to prepare us for just being a marathoner or you know, do the Tour de France, you know, going to be a, sa- a cyclist or something like that. Mom and Dad, I think I'm actually going to be a professional pie eater. <laughs> I mean, you can imagine Laura and Greg's chagrin. They're hearing the news that you want to be, that their offspring, who has not only their potential, but likely an, an elevated potential to be a world-class triathlete, even beyond each of them individually, to hear that this imaginary child just wants to be a professional pie eater. It would be criminal almost, if we could think about it. For me, really having an interest in triathlons, I look at that kid and I would get in his face and say, that's criminal. For you to have those blessings, high VO2, slow twitch muscle fibers, glycogen-rich livers, lean, genetically lean, or a tendency to be that way, the ability to deal with heat, a high pain tolerance, and you're going to bail on all of that for pie eating. It's an imaginary little scenario that I've come up with to kind of think about what it would be like for the church that fails to exercise the hard-won blessings that have been given us. Criminal, almost. The hard-won blessings that have been given us through the Holy Spirit, that I think that there are potentially whole churches who routinely gather and attend with a large population of pie-eaters Sorry, a large population of pie eaters who spectate while a small group of people exercise their gifts. Do you think that's a potential? I think it's a potential for any and every church. I think that potential is there, and realizing how terrible that would be, we could almost call it criminal. What we've been considering as a church family over the last few weeks is the beauty that when the Holy Spirit came, when The son went to the cross and he paid for our sins and he was raised and he 
was resurrected and he ascended to the Father's right hand and he promised, he said, I'm going away, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to come and he's going to bless you. He's going to help you. He's going to comfort you. He's going to guide you. He's going to teach you about all the things I've shared with you. And then on top of that, when he comes, he's going to give you a bunch of gifts. Man, what great news to realize that when the Holy Spirit has come, that he has gifted the church with a bunch of activities and giftings to participate and walk in while we wait for Christ's return. Things to be about as the church, all of us, not just a few people who are walking in their gifting with a bunch of folks just spectating, but all of us, every single one of us, if you are professing Christ as Savior and Lord, have been gifted with a spiritual version of high VO2 max, slow twitch muscle fibers, glycogen-rich livers, lean, the ability to deal with heat, and high pain tolerance. God has gifted every single one of us with it. This series of sermons that we've been considering this summer are enjoying individually, at least these last couple have been enjoying individually, a gift. The first three sermons are sort of setting the stage for this series, but each week we're spending a Sunday deposit, a Sunday's deposit of considering an individual gift. And what we've been enjoying is what we're to be up to till Christ comes back, first of all. And secondly, what we're to consider needs in our lives. Just as much as we're called to walk in these things and do these things and be these things as they've been gifted to us, we're to consider them as needs in our lives. I need the gift of service, which is the one we considered two weeks ago. I need the gift of teaching. I need to be on the receiving end of those things. See, I have the potential to join most of Greenville and sit home and think that churchless Christianity is is okay. If you've lived in Greenville or Hunt County for any period of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Likely you work with people, are related to people, are friends with people, are neighbors to people who say they love Jesus, but they have no use for the church. They've been there. I've been burned or I've been, you know, somebody's been mean to me. Well, man, you're missing out on the blessings and the gifts that God gave to the church. And not only that, you're saying you don't need them. Not only are you missing out on them, you're saying you don't need them, and guess what? The church doesn't need mine. That's what churchless Christianity effectively, functionally says and does. This series is a sweet series for us as we realize not only are things that have been gifted to us, but things that we can identify as real needs. I'll turn to Romans, Romans 12 this morning. We're going to consider our next gift this morning. For a few brief minutes, I'm going to call it the gift of encouragement. Just for a few brief minutes. And then I'm going to call it something else for the remainder of the morning. The gift of encouragement is what I'll call it first. Romans chapter 12. I'll give you page numbers too. Page 948. I have four passages that I'm going to have you turn to this morning. And the page numbers will work in the the Bibles that are in the seat bottoms in front of you. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you can have that one. Take that one. Put your name in the front. You can underline things in it. That's not um, a bad thing. It might help you. I I mark my Bible all up. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body... We have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, 
are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. This is one of a few short lists of spiritual gifts that are listed in our Bibles where we can gather up these gifts and look at them and examine them. And we're going to spend the morning examining this, what, what we're going to read about here next. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, and this is where we're going this morning on this one, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This word here, exhortation, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, in some of your Bibles, depending on what version you may have, it may say encouragement. That's why I want to start with that word this morning. That's where I first heard and learned about the gift of encouragement. And honestly, I didn't learn that much about it other than being referenced. When I, years ago, used to study the NIV. If some of you have the NIV, you're sitting in front of a text right now that says, refers to this, not as a gift of exhortation, or one who exhorts, but one who encourages, and the gift of exhort, or of, excuse me, encouragement. So let's talk about that word encouragement just for a moment. I want to first deal with what the gift of encouragement, and again, I'm only going to use that word for a few more moments, what the gift of encouragement isn't. Okay, first of all, the gift of encouragement is most definitely not affirming everyone else's life choices. Social media is such an, a tutor into what's really going on in our lives, in our community, in our culture, how people think and how they operate. And you can get on Facebook and see this very thing going on all day long. People affirming one another's life choices, no matter how godless they are or aren't. You might hear things in association with that affirmation is, you deserve it. You deserve to be happy. They might even invoke God's name. God wants you to be happy. So by all means, do X. Do whatever that is, whatever that life choice is that you have chosen. That is not the gift of encouragement to do that. To encourage one another with their life choices, however godly or not. In some ways, it comes out like telling them they're, they're awesome and telling them they deserve to be happy. You can imagine the scenario in the Facebook post where you see people one right after another, oftentimes, affirming decisions that are completely godless or at least questionable with things like, you deserve to be happy. That is not the spiritual gift of encouragement and is actually nothing more than greasing the skids for others to encourage you when you then go do the same. It's almost like you're feeding and fostering, or this practice, it's almost like feeding and fostering the herd mentality or the mob mentality. Man, people together in a mob will do some things that individuals won't. But when the individual throws this idea out there and the herd and the mob says, yeah, you deserve to be happy, go for it. Then before long, the mob is up to some craziness. This type of practice is not the gift of encouragement. It reminds me of Romans chapter 1, which is the go-to passage for the terrible lot of the, human, of the humankind. 
In verse 32 of the first chapter, it says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That is not the gift of encouragement. I'm starting with the obvious first. That is not the gift of encouragement. Secondly, the gift of encouragement is not liking everyone else's Facebook posts. <laughs> this isn't Social Media Sunday, but it's just such a great tutor in the human problem, in our human tendencies, in our human needs. There's something to that, isn't it? Those of you that are on Facebook, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you that might venture out and actually put a post up every now and again, some of you are wearing those things out. But some of you, like, man, I'm, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and you're wearing them out every few minutes, Facebook posts. But some of you, you might venture out and actually put one up there, and then you're watching it. Did anybody like my post? Did anybody think that I had something good to say? And then when that one person who always likes your post likes it, you're like, oh, I'm so encouraged. That's not the gift of encouragement. When that person liked your post, they weren't exercising the biblical gift of encouragement. They were exercising another gift. Maybe we'll call it Facebook liking. It's not a biblical gift. But I do admit it does provide some form of weird encouragement when other people like your posts. But being that Facebook liker is not what we're talking about this morning. Third... The gift of encouragement is not being the consummate cheerleader. I like cheerleaders, but it's not being the, and I don't mean girls cheerleaders. Although Christy was one, so that's okay. I'm not talking about girl cheerleaders. I'm talking about the the person who's always cheering. When I was growing up um, in our our town, and I grew up in Alexandria, Louisiana, and in town... (laughs) In town, there was an Air, Air Force base. England Air Force Base was the name of it. And all right, I grew up in central Louisiana. And I mean, I'm just going to tell you, you may, this may be hard to believe given my perfect English and lack of accent now. That I grew up in a redneck sort of context. I was being facetious, right? Not, 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 I, mean, I really don't think I have perfect accent. I mean, I, I recognize that I probably have some of the redneck accent that I had that I grew up with. I grew up in a context in central Louisiana where um, we took pride in sounding as stupid as we possibly could in the way we said things. But there was this England Air Force base plopped right in the middle of us. Okay, and if you've been around an Air Force base, you know that there are people, it's a melting pot from people all over the country, maybe even all over the world. Then a lot of folks join the military from other countries, but especially all over the country, and a lot of them from up north. And we had a phrase for somebody that would come into our school and join our school who had been, who like grew up in Michigan or something, that they were from on base, because that's the way they said it. Because you ask them, hey, where are you from? Or where do you live? I live on base. <laughs> and none of us talked that way, so we all kind of snickered. Yeah, you know, we were afraid, hey, where's he from? He's from on base. <laughs> well, we had this guy that I played t ball with, a guy named Steve, who was from on base. And <laughs> Every day or every practice or game, you name it, his dad was out there and was cheering for Steve and was like, I just heard it over and over again. And since Steve was from on base and was from up north, so was his dad. And his dad would shout from the stands over and over and over again, you can do it, Steve. You can do it, Steve. 
And for me, Redneck Ben, I'm just hearing that thinking, man, that's so funny. Those people are so funny from way up north up there. They talk so funny. But this guy, he sticks out in my mind, Steve's dad, as somebody who had the gift of cheerleading. We're not talking about this at this morning. That may be the gift of just being a good dad that talks like a Yankee. <laughs> I mean, I cheer for that guy now thinking about, man, that's the kind of dad that I want to be is cheering for Steve, even though Steve really couldn't do it. I'm, I, I'm just being honest. Steve really couldn't get it done. But, Dad, every moment, every few minutes, you can do it, Steve. We're not talking about the gift of being that consummate cheerleader. That's not the gift of encouragement that we're talking about this morning. And here's where I'm, gonna, I'm going to shift gears and not use that word anymore. If I do, it'll only be by accident. Because the word I want to use for the rest of the morning instead of the gift of encouragement is the gift of exhortation. The gift of exhortation. It's a less common word, and I think that's helpful sometimes because a less common word will give you a new parking place for a new idea and a new thought. And it's, it, it's protected from getting clouded by maybe a contemporary understanding of encouragement. And I think we are all affected by what I would describe or what I've sort of illustrated this morning already, a contemporary understanding of encouragement. I don't want that to cloud the next few minutes, so I'm going to use the word exhortation. The word exhortation itself, we're not going to study the word much. We're going to move to the Greek and the Hebrew briefly, and then we're going to go to the text. But the word exhortation means a communication intended to urge or persuade the hearers and readers, depending on what form the exhortation takes, to take some action. Okay, I'm going to read that again. A communication intended to urge or persuade the hearers or readers to take some action. That's exhortation. The word comes from, at least the Greek word comes from a word or is the word parakaleo. It means to call in or to call for or to call to. You can see connection to exhortation, a communication intended to urge or persuade, connected to this Greek concept or this Greek word, the concept of calling in, calling to someone, calling for someone. The Hebrew word or the Hebrew counterpart, we get some clue into how the Hebrew mind thought about this concept by reading the Greek Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. It's a great tutor into words like this and concepts like this. The Hebrew counterpart means to have compassion and also it means to encourage and to strengthen. I turn to the second place I'm going to have you turn this morning at John chapter 14. John chapter 14, page 901 of the Bible that's in your seat there. And if that number's not exact, it's really close. Page 901. In the book of John, we're in the place, in the context there, this farewell discourse that I've mentioned just a few weeks ago. These last few chapters of John that are encompassing the last few hours leading up to his arrest and cross. And it's here in John chapter 14 that Jesus promises, I'm going to send someone to you. I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to send someone to you. 
In many ways, he's speaking to this promise that he's made to him before. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And here's how I will never leave you or never forsake you. Look in chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Interesting passage considering what comes next. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That word there in the Greek is the word paraclete. It could be translated another exhorter. It's the same word that we're looking at this morning, this parakaleo. It's the same root word, the one who brings comfort, the one who encourages, the one who calls in, the one who speaks in, the one who exhorts. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be, as of Pentecost, seven weeks later, in you. Beautifully, I, this passage this morning, this name or this, this sermon this morning about exhortation is beautifully connected to the very person of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if there's a more straightaway gift of the Holy Spirit than the gift of exhortation because that's who the Holy Spirit is, the exhorter. He himself is the exhorter. So very fittingly, very appropriately, one of the gifts that he brings and gives to the church is the gift of exhortation, the gift of bringing help. The gift of bringing comfort, the gift of calling into, the, call, the gift of calling for, of calling to, the gift of communicating and, and, and urging and persuading hearers and readers to take action. That's the gift that he's given us, the Holy Spirit, in the gift of exhortation. Now, let me spend the next few minutes dealing with how this gift plays out. And this is really going to how, how we're going to spend the rest of the morning. Two ways the gift is exercised in the New Testament context, in the church. Okay, they're two very different but overlapping ways. They feed one another, but they have different shades, I guess you could say. Different distinct shades of the same gift. And the first thing we're going to consider in these next few minutes is the first way that it's exercised in the, in the church context. It is a consistent call to heed and follow God's truth. The gift of exhortation is a consistent call to heed and follow God's truth. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. As you're turning there, I'm going to read a few passages that will give you a little bit of flavor of what this looks like. Ephesians chapter 4 would be page 977. A consistent call to heed and follow God's truth. You see how distinct and different that is from our contemporary understanding of encouragement. Just think about this for a minute before, before we look at some little snapshots of it. You see how distinct this is from a contemporary understanding of encouragement. Ironically, contemporary understanding of encouragement might be the very opposite of what I'm saying here. Man, this guy just browbeats me to death. He just beats me to death with his reminding of what God said and did. <laughs> That's not an encouragement to me. Ironically, the contemporary understanding of encouragement can be the complete opposite of what the biblical gift of exhortation is. 
The biblical gift of exhortation is a consistent call to heed and follow God's truth. Here's some snapshots. Stay at Ephesians 1. We're going to land there, and I'm going to share a few passages just to kind of give you a little flavor of this gift. Acts chapter 15 Verse 32, Judas and Silas, having met with the Jerusalem council, who was dealing with the matter of whether the gospel should go to the Gentiles, are bringing word to the church in Antioch. And here's what it says. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged, the word there is exhorted, and strengthened the brothers with many words. Okay, first of all, just kind of gleaning from just some little snapshots. We can realize that exhortation is, is done and, and applied through words. Unlike the gift of service, who's not, it's not an audible gift, not necessarily. The gift of exhortation is an audible, spoken gift. They show up with words. They don't show up with foot washings. That's a different gift altogether. They show up with words, and those words encouraged and strengthened the brothers. That's what the gift of exhortation does. Here's another little snapshot. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement or exhortation of the Scriptures, we might have hope. The second thing that we can glean from a little snapshot there is that the words aren't just any old words, that exhortation is applied through audible Scripture spoken scripture. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the exhortation of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's the way you apply and walk in exhortation. That's the thing that you need in your life as someone in your life who is exhorting you with words, and not just any old words, but scripture words. We need it. It's the gift given to the church and the gift of exhortation, and we all need it. Here's the next snapshot, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge or exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. You get to hear a little bit of the flavor of exhortation there, where he is calling them uh, to, to a manner of walk, a manner of walk that's pleasing God. Finally then, brothers, we ask and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, that you do so more and more. It is a consistent call to heed and follow God's truth. Here's another one, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Guess which word is the word exhortation in there, in the Greek? Appeal. I urge you, brothers. I call into you, brothers. I speak into you, brothers. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This gift is a consistent call to heed and follow God's truth. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. You see it beautifully here. 
you've been st sticking with me, hanging with me, it's all going to come together here where we're going. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, exhort you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That right there is the gift of exhortation. I don't know if there's any other guy that handles exhortation better than Paul. And I'm convinced that if somebody, if, if, if people were, were cordoned off into their gifting, if we took Bible people and said, okay, these people, God, you, gift, you gifted uniquely in certain things, that Paul would sit right there squarely in the gift of exhortation. He is the go-to guy to look at to understand what exhortation looks like. Because you see him doing it all over the place. Now, let me show you something that's really a treat. I think this is really cool. The anatomy of a Pauline letter. Paul's letters are, at least from what I've been able to tell in the, the period of time that I've been studying Paul's letters, they all have the same type of anatomy. I want to show you this because if you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, I can do this. Okay, I can be bossy in the name of Jesus. <laughs> I can tell people what to do. I can tell people they ought to do something or stop doing this or start doing that. That sounds cool. That kind of sounds like my gifting. Some of you are thinking that right now. I finally found my gifting to be bossy in the name of Jesus. Let me help you see what biblical God-honoring exhortation really looks like. Dealing with, first of all, Paul's letters. He is the consummate exhorter. Now, the way Paul's letters sort of break down, Ephesians is a great tutor. And it's one that we should be very familiar with because we spent a few months there. I mean, I, I can't remember when we started Ephesians, but it's been a while. And we just finished chapter 3. And just finished chapter 3, and if you were paying attention in that last sermon in chapter 3, I told you that this book takes a different direction for the rest of the letter in Ephesians. The first three chapters are what we call full of indicatives. And then the last three chapters are full of what we would call imperatives. Okay, indicatives would be, um, he made you alive together with Christ. He raised us up. He seated us in heavenly places. Is there anything for you to go do in response to that? No, not yet. He's indicating some things that are true about the saints at Ephesus and true about us. We enjoyed them together, didn't we? The indicatives of the first three chapters. But then you move over to chapter 4 and he starts getting bossy. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And in many ways, what Paul is doing is he is illustrating for us what biblical exhortation looks like. Let me show you, first of all, what this gift looks like at its worst. And I won't even call it a gift because at its worst, it's not a gift. It's a curse. Imagine if Paul had written the book of, or the letter of the, the, to the church at Ephesus. Let's say he wrote the Ephesian letter, but he started at chapter 4. That would be exhortation at its worst. Let's say he started at chapter 4. Dear Christians at Ephesus, I, Paul, write to you in God's name. I'm just thinking about how he might start a letter. And a grace and peace to you. And the first verse, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It seems pretty harmless, right? But if you consider where the rest of this book goes, it goes into 
Husbands, loving your wives as Christ loved the church. Imperative. Wives, submit to your husbands. Imperative. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Imperative. Imperative after imperative after imperative. Think about if he just left that alone without any indicatives over here in the first three chapters. That's being bossy in the name of Jesus. And you know what that makes for? It just makes for a fancy form of spiritual form of what I would call legalism. Bankrupt bossiness. That's exhortation at its worst. If Paul had only written chapters 4 through 6 and left off chapters 1 through 3, or maybe if he had just assumed that the Ephesian church understood chapters 1 through 3. I'm assuming they know all that kind of stuff, so I'm just going to jump into the imperatives and just start getting bossy in Jesus' name. The consequence of presenting imperatives only is that you are presenting a moral message. And here's the bad news for you. A moral message is a bankrupt message. It's not good news. Bring it to your workmates. Bring it to your friends. Bring it to those you love and care about. Bring it to your family members. Bring it to your children. And you are bringing them a moral bankrupt message that's not good news. Raise your children up only in the imperatives and call that exhortation and watch them bail on the faith the minute they walk out of your door. Because here's how it goes out for parenting. Here's how it works in parenting. This is why we're getting real personal here with something. We're not just talking about academic stuff. We're talking about how this plays out in your home. Here's how it works out for the parent. parent says, I want you to do this. And the kid says, well, why do you want me to do that, mom and dad? You say, because I said so. That's bossiness in the name of parenting. Or screaming at the kid, trying to intimidate them into obedience. Because you're reading... Chapter 6, verse 1 of Ephesians, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And you're using that as an excuse that you need to obey me because God said so. But you're thinking it. You're not even connecting God to the conversation. Man, I'm not picking on anybody because I've been guilty of it. I've been guilty of John Wayne parenting at its worst. And the pulpits can be guilty of that too. All you hear from a pulpit is, Thou shalt do this or thou shalt stop doing that. People just storming around, bossing around, yelling at you, what you're not supposed to do or what you're supposed to do. Imperative, heavy sermons, one right after another. That's not God-honoring biblical exhortation. The sad thing is, is what I just described, an imperative, heavy sort of type of movement, you can be just as guilty going the other direction, having an indicative, heavy ministry or an indicative, heavy message. And Paul told the the Corinthian church in chapter 6, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, he said, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't just bathe in grace with no effort, no movement to then go walk and respond with some imperatives. Man, years ago, I got myself in all kind of mess mentioning people, specific people by name. With grace-heavy, imperative, void messages here in our community. Some of the people that you know that are no longer living here. And that's why I was going after that message. Because a message that is void of the imperatives is sick. And a message that's void of the indicatives is just as sick. Proper biblical exhortation goes together. We're going to look at Paul as the model for this. He's the guy that demonstrated it one book after another. Ephesians chapter 1, verse, chapters 1 through 3. 
indicative, indicative, indicative. This is who you are in Jesus. This is what God has done for you in Christ. This is who you are as the people of God. Chapters 4 through 6, imperatives. Now go do. Now go be. Now go walk in this. That's a healthy message. Those things have to go together as parents, as preachers, as teachers, as friends who are sharing the gospel with others. If you want to walk in the gift of exhortation, that's what biblical exhortation is. They go together. The indicatives and the imperatives. He did it in Romans too. I don't know if you were paying attention. If you know the book of Romans, you know that the first chapter, first 11 chapters of Romans are indicatives. One right after another. Here's the human problem. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory glory of God. But here's what God did for you. He saved you in Christ. I got verse after verse going on in my head and I'm drawing a blank right now. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Indicative. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Indicative. That's who you are in Christ. Now chapter 12. Imperative. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And ironically, what does he start talking about next? Spiritual gifts. This isn't just a little series to sort of fill the summer. I'm realizing more and more this is a series to be faithful as a people. This is a series about what God's people are supposed to look like. Indicative bathed imperatives. Walking in indicative bathed chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. Chapter 12 through 16 of Romans, imperatives. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, this is who you are in Christ. This is what God has done for you. Chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, submit to your husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. They go together. Biblical exhortation, godly, God-honoring exhortation brings them together. Parents, you've got to think about how this has got to find some purchase in the way you shepherd your kids. I realize you can scream at your kids and probably intimidate them into being quiet. You can yell at your kids and probably intimidate them into doing what you want them to do. That is not biblical exhortation. You're creating a little legalist there. Ideally, what you do is you connect it to some indicatives. Think about this same scenario. You're talking to your kid and you're saying, hey, I want you to obey me because God said you should. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And they say, okay, well, that helps me a little bit. But then you go back over here to chapter 2 of Ephesians and said, you know why we want to do that? Because God raised us up with Christ. Because God made us alive together with Christ, little Johnny. And God seated us with the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has seated us as a reigning, ruling hero, even though we didn't win the victory. We have the goods, little Johnny, to obey your parents. And that's why you want to obey your parents. Not to make life easier for me as mom and dad because I had a hard day. Have you ever done that, any parents? What we're talking about is shepherding the heart. Vice making your life a little bit easier. If you sense my emotion, it's because I haven't always done that. But man, we're called to it. There ought to be biblical exhortation going on in every home. We're not just talking about what takes place in church gatherings. Moms and dads, you've got to be biblical 
exhorters. You can encourage your children. You can encourage your friends. You can encourage your workmates. You should encourage one another to live in a manner worthy of the gospel because he made us alive together with Christ. Because he seated us with Christ and he raised us up with him. We should encourage one another to live in a manner worthy of the gospel because we can't assume this. Because he united Jew and Gentile into a new humanity called the church. That's why we want to walk in hard things. That's why we want to walk in imperatives. Because they're tied to indicatives. That's biblical, godly exhortation. It's a call to obedience. Conditioned by the realities of grace. A call to obedience. Conditioned by the realities of grace. I don't know of another gift that better captures what preaching is. I want you to hear this every Sunday. A call to be. A call to walk. A call to follow, a call to respond, but in the same breath, in the same context, in the same seating, a reminder of who you are and a reminder of who, what he's done for you. A grace-conditioned exhortation. This is faithfully holy. This is faithful Holy Spirit-fueled, Holy Spirit-guided exhortation, I believe. And this is a gift that we all need And we need to be these people in our context. It's not just preaching. It's parenting. It's sharing your faith with your friends. It's being a salty, bright, aromatic disciple of Christ in your workplace. Having both in hand, indicatives, imperatives. And speaking. Speaking with encouragement. The scripture bathed. The second thing is much briefer this morning. The first thing was, the first aspect of this gift was a consistent call to heed and follow God's truth. And we can round that out. Conditioned by mercy. The second thing is that it's comforting the afflicted. Turn to the last passage I'm going to have you turn to this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Comforting the afflicted is the second aspect of exhortation. Beginning in verse 3. This is a benediction at the beginning of a letter. And it's bathed in something. I want you to pay attention to the word comfort. Notice how many times you see the word comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. This is the noun form of the word we've been considering all morning. The same word, exhortation, parakaleo. This is the noun form, comfort. The God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort also. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings 
that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. This benediction is rich in Old Testament promise and prophecy. I'll share a few passages with you. You can jot them down or you can just listen. I don't know that you'll be able to turn there quickly enough, but they're all from Isaiah. And they're all in context where he's promising the suffering servant, the Messiah to come. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Now he is speaking about what will come when the Messiah comes. Because they're not experiencing comfort at the moment. That's for sure. Same book, chapter 51, verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Verse 12 of the same chapter. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like the grass? Verse 19 of the same chapter. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? The next chapter, chapter 52, verse 9. Break forth together in singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Passage after passage in Isaiah that's prophetic, pointing toward what will be true in the Messianic age. What will be true when Christ comes? Comfort to the afflicted. Jesus promised it too. Comfort to those who mourn. They shall be comforted. You know why he could say that? He could say that because I'm here. I'm here now. Isaiah promised it, and now I'm here. If you know your story of the, the birth of Christ and you've saturated yourself or you spent yourself getting uh, familiar with the passages that talk about Christ's birth, and this may be a familiar, familiar story to you. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. This is in Luke chapter 2. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout. This man was waiting for and looking for one thing, the Christ, the Messiah. And here's what it says. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That word is the noun form of the word we've been talking about all morning. Been waiting for the exhortation of Israel. He's been waiting for the comfort of Israel. He's been waiting for the encouragement of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
The other aspect to exhortation this morning is the aspect of comfort. And this beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this benediction that's so rich in Old Testament fulfillment and Old Testament promises that are real for us, that were real for the Corinthians because of Christ, that that exhortation is given to you so that you can comfort others as you have been comforted by God. That comfort was given to you and given for you, not just to be terminal and end on you, but so that you could comfort someone else. That's exhortation. And that 2 Corinthians passage, too, so beautifully demonstrates that sometimes the best comforters are the people who have gone through the biggest messes, the biggest trials the biggest difficulties, because it's in those messes that they learned, they realized that the Messiah is enough. The Messiah is enough. This Paul that encouraged them with these words, that this the God of all comfort has comforted us so that we may be able to comfort those in any affliction, is the same guy that went through these things. Later in this same letter in 2 Corinthians, he says, I've gone through far greater labors, far more imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. That doesn't sound like comfort. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Three times you're shipwrecked? That's like being in three plane crashes. Are you kidding me? I don't want to get on any boats with Paul ever. Three times I'm shipwrecked. He's stoned. He's beaten with rods. Forty lashes. A night and a day adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, what's worse than one after another sleepless night? In hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from the other things, on top of it all, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is the guy that says, God comforted me in my affliction so I can comfort you. That's exhortation because in that he's saying, you know what? There's not comfort, earthly, worldly comfort in those messes because those lashes hurt. Hunger hurt. Being betrayed hurts. The kind of stuff that he went through, name them. They hurt, but it's in those messes, in those trials, in those difficulties that he learned Christ is enough. The comfort promised to Israel is the comfort that he walked in. That's exhortation. Now I'm going to exhort you with a word of encouragement and comfort. It comes right from this passage. It's one that has ministered to me over the years and blessed me in so many ways. Such a simple thing, but it's beautiful. I want you to see this. This is going to be where we're going to land. I'm not telling you that so you can kind of get shuffled and ready for the supper. I'm telling you that so you can pay special attention and be comforted for a minute. 
Because if you're not in a trial, you will be. Or maybe you're being equipped right now so that you can bring comfort to somebody else. It wouldn't surprise me if it happened this week. Let me equip you. Let me comfort you with something. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. I want you to, if you're a word circler, if you circle things in your Bible, underline them. I want you to circle or underline or pay special attention to the word affliction. You can insert any of the things we just read over there about Paul into that. I like how it's ambiguous right here. It's ambiguous enough at this point right here early on in the letter to where I can insert my affliction in there. My various afflictions. <laughs> I have some. I have things that I struggle with. Do you? Anything, any quiet memories of something that was stupid? Any reminders that you nagging things that, man, that really is frustrating to me. Any affliction that you deal with? Marital struggle? Physical health issues? Money issues? Relationship issues? Insert them in that affliction here for, for, with me for a moment. Underline or circle that word. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired of life itself. Have you ever despaired that much? Have you ever thought, man, I think suicide might be easier than this? There are people in this room that have thought that. You may be entertaining that idea right now, some of you. Let me bring you some sweet comfort. In what he says next, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. This situation is hopeless. It doesn't seem to be changing. I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. Anybody? We felt we had received the sentence of death, but that... Now, if you underline, if you write, if you draw in your Bible, circle the word that and draw an arrow up to affliction. Or at least visualize it. Or insert the word there in your minds. That affliction... Whatever you inserted in there, what, that list that Paul could insert in there, that affliction, that trial, that struggle was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Man, that should bring you some comfort. That that mess that you went through or are going through or that thing that you're struggling with, God isn't just messing with you. He wasn't messing with Paul in those afflictions. He was bringing him comfort by teaching him to rely not on himself, but on God who raises the dead. That passage has ministered to me and comforted me more times than I can count. If you're comforted right now, you've just been on the receiving end of biblical exhortation.
And guess what? You've also been equipped to exhort someone else. Let's pray. God, what a sweet gift. What a wonderfully sweet gift you've given us in exhortation. It is, um, I enjoy that in many ways it's the embodiment of what you have given us in the Holy Spirit as our comforter. God, I pray for everyone in here for opportunities. As we've talked about this today, that this hasn't been limited to the pulpit. But Lord, I pray that we've equipped parents to think about what it means to shepherd hearts rather than boss kids.